You've scared me enough. I don't want to use the internet anymore. I would advise against it. On to today's app. app. Don't be Utah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about hosting your own code and how to prevent some of the obvious and, well, less obvious issues that come from, come from relying on remote sources. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So before we get started, I wanted to call out that today, Friday the 11th of March, the day we're releasing this episode, is the one-year anniversary of shutting down public schools where I live and kind of the beginning of the quarantine, lockdown, pandemic craziness. Um, at the time, we all thought it was going to be a couple of weeks. We were like, oh, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, maybe. But we were pretty optimistic that things would go back to regular in the fall. Um, and that picture rather rather quickly changed, of course. Um, it's a year later now, and I'm really hopeful that we can get the kids back to school in August. But, hey, who knows? Um and I just wanted to reiterate to everybody, go get the vaccine, wear your masks, you know, wash your hands, be, be smart about this. We are within reach of getting this thing under control, but we have to do this. Yeah. On to today's topic. Um, we're talking about kind of hosting your own code. This, we, were, we all got shared an article earlier in the week about um, typo squatting and namespace issues with relying on internet sources and we were talking just amongst ourselves and we realized that this would actually be something we should address a little more seriously on, on the show today um but i wanted to let jack talk first about package management at scale and some of the challenges there <laughs> so we'll have this paper in the show notes and go read it it will blow your mind of of what a good security folks can do <clears throat> um but most of that story relates back to packaging and I've been doing packaging for various distributions, entities, universities, well, what have you for, I don't know how many years at this point, it's been a long time. And of course, packaging is the first step in automation of being able to deploy software. And we started back in the day with, you know, TGZ packages from Slackware. And that was basically a tarball and an install script. I'm going to note that install script. I spent probably 10 years of my life packaging RPMs and packaging devs after that. And I realized how broken package management was at that point. The fact well, the, that the only it was thing worse than the only thing worse than a bad package manager is Apple's solution, which is no package manager. But I'm not sure that's worse. <laughs> I'm not sure that's worse. Oh, it's, I, it's, it's worse. Trust me. I don't know. Bad, bad, really bad package managers can be worse than none. Because at least with none, you know what you're in for. When they're really bad and they hose you and screw up and overwrite each other and basically act as bad actors, it comes out of the blue sometimes. With, with, <laughs> with no package manager, you're left writing your own collection of things and you're solving all of these same problems again for everybody else and all the edge cases of how do you handle dependencies and how do you handle upgrades and how do you get from differential versions to other versions it is a terrible terrible nasty place to be and you do not want to be supporting that trust me 
But that that happens even with package managers. See <laughs> exactly. NPM or gyms or any others. Pip, name your own. CPAN, every language now has its own package management and it's, don't do it. But part of what I realized with RPMs and DEBs is that it's incredibly complex to create a good package. And if you want to participate in any of the communities that build RPMs, um, Fedora Red Hat or any of the, of the Debian landscape, following the guidelines they have to produce good packages is hard and lots of review. And there's so much effort that goes into there. It's, it's nearly unobtainium, which means that it's really challenging to produce packages. And you basically have these package blobs that you can't, uh, distribute or share because they don't work anywhere else. And that's the whole point of packages is to enable portability, but they're not portable. And, you know, that landscape broke out into every single language, Python, Go, Java, everybody having their own package manager and all re-implementing the same horrible things. Um, there was a company some friends of mine worked for called RPath which I think was one of the first um, times someone tried to build a package manager that was more like a subversion or a Git-based system. You had a branch that your package lived on, and you tagged as you went, but the, the tags didn't matter unless you wanted to check out a specific tag. If you want to run the latest version of the package, that was whatever was on the tip of the branch. So that was kind of interesting. Um, but I really think that package management is why Docker became popular and succeeded was because Docker is just package management, but it's the simplest way that I've ever seen to package up an application, to share it, to make it available on the internet, to have it be portable and not require a doctor's thesis in some distribution to be able to share the work that you've done in-house. So, so I, I give Docker a whole lot of credit for being able to simplify the distribution of, for lack of a better word, artifacts. To say, here is a self, self-contained self blob that is the database instance or the application instance or whatever it is you're trying to, to push around. And it's been very useful and very handy for a lot of things. But it has so many interesting issues that people don't really think about. Um. And to me, the biggest, the biggest and most alarming one of those is the security aspect. What do you, what's in the base layer you're pulling from or the base layers you're pulling from? How do you actually know what's there? There's and a simple question. Like, what at least with, is your package running as? Are you it, still running as root? At, at least with traditional package management systems like RPMs and DEBs and, and whatnot, you have a signed repository that, that Red Hat or whoever has said, we have built these packages if there's a security issue, you can report them to somebody and get them fixed. Whereas with Docker images, it's sort of, hey, I built it from some random person on the internet and I used it and I, I shared it again and somebody else is using mine. How do you, how do you trace that back? Well, the, the simple is you don't because everybody just says, oh, I found this container that has all, everything I need. So I'm, I just pulled it down and I then pushed it up into our repo. So now it's secure. We're good to go. <laughs> or or even, you know, I remember back when, um, 
Oh crap! What's the name of the distribution that got popular with Docker? CoreOS. Oh, no, no. That everybody started building their images off Al- of this Alpine. small Linux. Thank you. Uh, I remember when Alpine uh, got really big suddenly because everyone was really concerned about Docker image sizes. And I remember there was this, a good vocal minority that was like, "Wait a minute, but how do we verify these these packages? How do we know that, or how do we know that we can trust the maintainers of Alpine?" and you know, this is a smaller distribution than uh, Ubuntu or uh, CentOS. So at least with those, you can have some trust. And then all of a sudden, everybody just started using Alpine. And I just remember at first being very concerned about the uh, the security around those packages. There's a reason that you have a bunch of security companies that have sprung up in the space of how do you secure and scan and maintain and audit your Docker images? Like this has become a business that people make good money running companies to help solve this problem because it's, it's a big because one. No one knows what libraries are running inside yeah. their Docker image. That's the scariest thing with them is you don't really know what's in there and nobody ever spends any time. They just find the one that fits best for their use case. They do a pull they add their own junk and they push it back up to their own repo and off they go. And it, it's terrifying. And you, you can argue and that, like, okay. seeing some of the same things that happened with Debian's and RPMs back in the day, uh, certain entities uh, like Docker Hub are starting to bless and make certain official, you know, repositories and packages and, and guidelines around how to have an official Docker image. And we see this repeat. So yeah, how does this relate to our story? <laughs> so one of the, the things that happens that, that one of the things you get in Docker images is you don't know what's upstream. You don't know what's changed. And it's easy, especially when you are sourcing lots of different things. You need to pull a base layer from this or a base layer from that or in the layer or in the image that somebody else built, they misspelled something. There's a lot of interesting, in, interestingly bad ways to spell things. And a security researcher for this dependency confusion article did typo squatting on a bunch of kind of well-known or that he searched through a lot of available packages and looked for places where people were pulling things that they could, that he could easily typo squat, like hitting the wrong key on your keyboard or common misspellings or those kinds of things. I think he started off with, with um, taking proprietary packages that people were, that, you know, they were pulling from inside and he squatted on the internet with him, so, which would have been then priority. Superseded. Yes, he was finding people's internal packages right. that were in their list of dependencies and typo squatting those since they didn't exist in the public repositories. Yeah, and right. his code was a, was a very simple ping beacon that said, hey, once you install this thing, just ping back to a server that he ran so he could see that you had used it, you had utilized it. And the number of hits was frustratingly high from amazing companies that you've heard of. Yeah, that's the part. It was big names that were running this stuff. And that's why we started talking about this in the beginning or earlier in the week, because this is one of those things that isn't entirely solved by running your own or hosting your own repositories and code, but is greatly mitigated. If you say, no, 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 the only place you can talk to to get packages from is the internal mirror of things. And you have some process by which you vet or gate or add things to that mirror it 
it slows down the ability for a random build pipeline to then go pull code and run it dynamically once it's been pulled. And that, but, oh. but you just mentioned the key, which was the verification part of it. Cause even in that article, uh, artifactory was hit because again, the, the priority pinnings of things. Uh, and if you just, bl- if you just blindly mirror the PYPI or, uh, Ruby gems or, or whatever, uh, uh, package repository you're mirroring and you do not have a process to say, okay, we're only going to allow or mirror these libraries that we have vetted. You're all you've done is just created a mirror and you're still going to have the issues. Or if you're using effectively latest, if you're saying, yeah, give me whatever the current version oh, of NumPy is versus NumPy, whatever, I don't care. Um, I mean, all of them prefer the latest version. So if you just ask for the package, you get the latest version including if somebody's uploaded a copy of it to a public repository with a higher version than yours. Yeah, and that, that's part of the, the difficulty. So when you're building things, folks, seriously, have your version pins for everything in place. Um, I've, been, I've dealt with so many times at work that either a library or something else upgraded, and now other pieces broke because either it wasn't available or right. you know, the, the interface changed to it and suddenly you have a piece of code that you have been shipping consistently for a long time that breaks and you're you have a bunch of engineering work to do to figure out which broke what version was i running i don't even know because i don't have the old artifact anymore or whatever it is yeah so, i mean forget the security implications going with latest all the time just from stability <laughs> you never know when you're going to get breaking changes in latest that you haven't tested yet it's yeah, I hate latest. I hate when people see in that when you you know you start to take over something and you look through their look through the code and it, pull latest. No, but this is combined with like our friend Debian's and many other package managers that as soon as you install a package or link it with your code, it automatically starts running that code, which is I I cannot believe that decision. Well, wait, I mean, so both RPM and Debian's can do the same thing, although I, in practice, I've seen that being much more common with, with Debs than yeah. RPM's. It is standard practice in with Debian's that when you install something, so you install Nginx or Apache, that it attempts to start it during the install process. Yes. Whereas right. RPM's, generally speaking, install the package, and by convention, they install it, but leave it idle with startup scripts and stuff available, but not actually running. It doesn't, right, it doesn't which, edit the server when you install the package. Whereas devs so you have exactly. a malicious package, and now the code is running on your laptop. Are you calling Nginx uh, malicious? Well, I mean, it just said it was Nginx. I mean, it... it is when you spelled it wrong and you pulled the package from someplace else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and th- this kind of issue also comes in with other, other pieces. Um, there was a, a, a Chrome extension called the Great Suspender that had a, a major security blow up in the fall last year. And it's still kind of rocking along now that whoever was the maintainer of it transferred maintenance to some other party who version revved it and added tracking code and other things that seem somewhat malicious that are unrelated to the job that the great suspender was doing. And of course, Google took the steps of shutting down the plugin because, hey, this is not okay that somebody's doing malicious things. I'll, I'll throw a link into the show notes about the GitHub issue and kind of the conversation around this. But anytime the maintenance of something changes, you then have to reevaluate the security position of using the stupid thing because you don't necessarily know that the maintenance transition was done in 
for either was, was a valid transition. Sometimes it was done. Somebody has taken over something or a maintainer said, Hey, I can't do this anymore. They sell it to somebody. And that person has say less than honest intentions with it. You've scared me enough. I don't want to use the internet anymore. I would advise against it. Well, and, and I think that's also why we see the popularity of, of build systems like Bazel that takes it one step further and says, okay, well, what we're going to do is just, uh, and it combines several other things like monorepos. I mean, it's not just Bazel itself. You're, you're combining some other uh, ideologies here, but uh, we're going to sit here and have a, a system that takes into account all dependencies and tries to manage all of them and not only build them, but then do what's known as you know, repeatable builds to where you can guarantee that what you just built or the version you're using will always be able to be built. Yeah, somebody else and who's checked it, out to that version of your, your repository who runs the build process will get the same thing that you got, which is the holy grail of all build systems. Exactly. And 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 I like that it forces I mean, obviously, I mean, whenever I first adopted Basil, it was it was a pain to sit there and have to say, Oh, now I gotta sit here and enumerate all these dependencies. But it after a while it clicks and it makes sense. And it's like, well, you know, it's it's great that I'm actually explicit in all these dependencies. Uh, and that I'm having to include these because it, it does make you stop and think how many things you're dependent on versus just what you thought you were you, you, like, if you're pulling in this one library, that one library might pull in 15 other dependencies. And, uh, it's just something to, to give you thought on, uh, as you're doing, dealing with it. The unknown dependency thing always, always makes me think about left pad, which was a, um, NPM module it was like 11 lines of code long, I think. And the developer got upset about something. I don't remember the exact story. It's been quite a while now. And dropped all of his packages from the repositories. And a number of high-profile, you know, they should know better kind of internet companies broke because their build systems were pulling on this thing and then couldn't get it anymore. <laughs> and again, it's one of those things of just running code, running an 11-line library, from a public package repository that you don't control? What are you doing? And really, my favorite thing about this entire episode is the fact that the the security researcher doing this work used DNS exfiltration to get data out because he knew that companies inside a corporate VPN would, would get these packages installed, and how would he get data back out and by running his own dns server and using simple dns queries is all it took to start exfiltration data from within your highly protected corporate vpn yeah i'll be honest i didn't know about that until a few years back and and it's like anything that's something that is so genius like that. Once you figure out about it, you're like, oh, why didn't I think about that? Or that that is so clever. Honestly, though, if you don't know about it or know how to protect from it, because it's actually very easy to protect from it, uh, please go out and do it. Because it, it is a way to get data out of your company. And, it's, and, and, the, and the fact that it is so easy to protect from and uh, to also, on the flip side uh execute against it, it's it's something you really need to protect from while we're talking it's about always dns yeah but while we're talking about moratoriums on doing kind of some of these stupid things 
Can we also all adopt the security posture of never, ever, ever running curl pipe pseudo bash ever again? <laughs> yeah, I mean, reading that article, uh, which I, I guess we'll put in the show notes, uh, there was a recent article about doing that. And yeah, that was just terrifying how well it, how easy it was to, to do it. I mean, it made sense. How you easy read it. it is to detect yeah. from the remote end that you're piping into bash versus just doing a curl dump to your console and it's, so you can feed it, different content it's absolutely terrifying the number of oh, how do i install this you go to the website and it says w get blah blah, blah pipe to bash pipe to pseudo bash a lot of these things yeah. are go ahead and run this as a privileged user because why not no the really great ones um i was reading aws's documentation for setting up uh, EKS and setting up the, the ALB load balancer controller within EKS. Within that documentation, Amazon literally has kubectl apply dash f https colon slash slash random GitHub repository. Wow. And yet it was SSL'd. It was GitHub, which I really appreciate. But we're doing the same thing with with Docker at this point, because it will gladly pull manifests off the internet and send them directly to your control plane. And that is, I mean, okay, so there's a security side of that, which is extraordinarily stupid, but there's also (laughs) the availability side of that. Like we've had issues where GitHub is down or S3 is down or, or, or. So suddenly you have tied your ability to run and deploy and sometimes even start up your services if they're doing a a check for something on the internet. You're tying that to A, your internet internet connection being up. B, you're tying it to the provider being in service or whatever else. And again, back to the left pad kind of thing, that the person's account that you're pulling it off of is still active and valid. What happens when somebody releases a piece of code under their personal GitHub account that they've, they've associated with the GitHub organization for their employer? And then this happened to me. I was consulting for a household name company that if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard of before. And I had forked some GitHub code and added some functionality and was trying to get the upstream maintainer to accept some patches. And for whatever reason, they weren't interested in accepting my patches in a timely fashion. So a large number of projects started using my personal GitHub uh, clone as their authoritative upstream source. And that went on for a couple years until one of the really good security guys said, wait a minute, this is Jack's personal GitHub. Um, let's clone this internally. Yeah, perhaps we shouldn't do that. <laughs> perhaps this is a bad idea. Jack could, you know, leave one day. Yeah, well, except that Brendan and I did do that because we were <laughs> we ran something that was the pulling your code. Yeah, we were earlier adopting the same that organization. <laughs> and oh, oh, just because you're the the first adopters, I mean, <laughs> and just because you're the example for the rest of the company. Yeah, and just because one of your friends, who's a coworker, happened to do the thing, doesn't mean that oh, well, I know this person personally, so they're never going to yeah. remove their their repository. What happens when they find another job? What happens when they move on to something else? You have to. It was still take a bad idea. Yeah, we totally should not have done that. I, I do not. No. I'm not defending our decision to do that. It no, was stupid I, of us. I, yeah. I, I, well, even I'm, 
as we mentioned, I mean, what if Jack did something else on another one of his re- uh, repos and GitHub, you know, t- turned off his account? Or what if I left to a different job and just decided I would clean up my GitHub stuff of stuff I don't use? Or he dropped his thumb drive when he was going to lunch and somebody found his keys and was able to upload their own stuff to it. Damn, thumb drives. So, yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, and so, like, there's so many pieces of this that it's convenient and it's easy to just say, oh, well, I'll, I'll just pull the easy thing. I'll, I'll grab Alpine. I'll, I'll do a curl bash to install this particular chart or this thing into my, into my Kubernetes cluster. And then you have this this pattern of behavior that leads to unsafe, unstable, and downright dangerous um, security and operational practices. Folks, host your own code whenever you can and pin your packages, all of them, so you know when something changes. It's not intellectually that difficult. It does add more time to the build process. It does add more time to what you're doing. But it's super important to understand all your dependencies. You know, I've done a lot of work in visibility and observability and I understand the effort and time it takes to create a good observability platform for a company. And CICD isn't any different in that regard. It takes a strategy. It takes thought. It takes some time and effort rather than just pulling things off the Internet. And, you know, because it takes some effort and some strategy, you know, often people look at it and think it's slow and they can't get what they need through the process. I think a lot of it comes from, though, during the development process of, well, I can just do this. And it works. And then it becomes production or it moves to production. And yeah, you got to move fast, right? Yeah. And the, but the, the trick is if you don't have the safeguards in place so that doesn't work, you know, your, your staging and build pipelines should have no ability to pull from the Internet. That should just fail. Yeah, they and can only pull from the blessed internal exactly. mirror of everything. And you shouldn't have the ability to just throw anything up on the internal repo. It should be vetted, whatever that means for your organization. But it's that ability to just, you know, get it done easy and develop. Well, everybody does that. Everybody wants that. It's understandable. But you can't do the same thing for production. You shouldn't. You have to look at it and see what the implications are and deal with them. On the flip side, you also have to make sure that the development chains and the toolkits available to the development teams do not get in their way other than when they absolutely have to. Because as you add more and more barriers to things, you inevitably get shadow IT or other, other, you know, the, those, those other organizational failures that you try to sidestep the security practice. You try to sidestep the operational practice. You try to sidestep the purchasing practice because it takes too long. And you know that if you wait for the official channels, either the project will wither and die because you didn't have enough resources to get it done, or you're going to miss your deadlines. So you have to make sure that the tool chains and the other pieces that you do offer to the folks who are consuming these things and outputting to these things are reasonable and have enough sane built-in defaults that they're not reaching for all these crazy solutions all the time. So just to kind of tie things together, 
a lot of what we're talking about is not dissimilar from the, the solar winds hack that happened several months ago. That was a supply chain hack where a build system was compromised and malicious intent people were able to insert their own code in the build system, which was then incorporated into the product and then distributed to that product's customers. Wait, I, I thought it was because the intern had a password of SolarWinds123. I thought that was the whole reason. No, that's that my luggage. <laughs> no, I mean, I just thought it was very, here, here's, a, here's a huge company that's a security company, and yet they're going to pin it on the, 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 the password of an intern. I, anyway. I didn't hear the intern story. Yeah, the yeah, it can't. part of the breach came from the intern, and that's at least the, that's what the CEO said in public. Um, I'm not sure that loading that I blame on an intern that there is were the multiple attack vectors. What? And and that's the thing, right? I mean, I, to to and that's that's the reason to me it actually makes them look worse because one <laughs> they're, they're throwing they're throwing an intern under the bus, but irregardless of that. An intern, if they're if they're supposedly a lowly intern, shouldn't have the power to make the changes that they supposedly had the power to make changes of. And if they did even have the power, why isn't that behind MFA or other security protocols beyond just a password? Amen. Well, it, it, to make the, that particular part of the story even worse, a security researcher discovered this password in 2019. So right, it was like right. 18 months to two years before this whole thing exploded that somebody warned solar winds that this password was set and they did nothing about it. Ooh, that's bad. Sorry. I didn't mean to derail us. It's just, no. I just, I, anyway, security is a multifaceted thing. You can't rely on one thing or another, but your build pipeline is an extraordinarily sensitive piece of your infrastructure to any technology fa facing company. And you have to make sure you have secured your build pipeline. Absolutely. That that has to be treated with the utmost uh, secure, security and, and respect, uh, because as SolarWinds shows, it can completely uh, destroy what you're providing to your your customers. Well, it's, it's, and it's just not, it's not only your code, it's all those libraries. It's all those dependencies. You can't just be including whatever you want from wherever you want, because... Somebody may be sneaking something in through there. And so we should just turn on MFA everywhere, right? Because all the AWS APIs support it cleanly and easily and all just, oh. <laughs> yeah, where's my FIDO key? Yeah. <laughs> I want my FIDO key. Everybody there, should support FIDO. There's so many infrastructure services and so many cloud vendors and so many other pieces that make it either difficult to get security correct or make it inscrutable or say, oh, well, you have MFA delete turned on, so you can't actually use this other piece of replication technology you wanted to use, or whatever it is. It is... It, it just frustrates me. We were talking before the show about how difficult it is to initialize a new Amazon account and hmm. set up MFA for your, your, your sysadmins, your DevOps people. And there are multiple slightly subtly different ways to enable MFA, and depending on how you set it up, it depends on how complex or easy it is to use other tools. And that should be super simple to just stamp out and have it just work. Killed it. Once again, folks, 
Get your shots, wear your masks, wash your hands. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts. Email feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. COVID.